1: hello and welcome back to the breaching extinction podcast for those of you that are new here the breaching extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them there are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left and they are currently threatened by lack of prey vessel noise and water toxins all these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea, however, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Worth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives, I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks! Hello everybody and welcome to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. This week I'm here with Erin Falcone. She's a fin whale researcher. How are you doing today, Erin?
0: I'm doing great and excited to be here.
1: Yes, I'm super excited to have you because I like, we've seen fin whales a few times on the bay and like I just, I, I think most of us don't know like anything about fin whales. So I'm very excited to learn um but tell us about yourself where are you from um where like are you currently employed what kind of
0: work do you do now okay um I am actually a California native I grew up around San Diego and I went to school in Humboldt County in Northern California so I've kind of done all of California and um out of school I ended up getting a job in Olympia Washington so that brought me up to Washington State in my 20s and have been here ever since doing marine mammal work pretty much exclusively in the nonprofit sector. So kind of all soft money project oriented um, conservation-based research. So in 2016, my partner and I um, decided to start our own small nonprofit, which we run out of our house. And it's called Marine Ecology and Telemetry Research, has a terrible name, um, but we go by Mar Ecotel for short, which is our our web handle, marecotel.org. And, our work for the last five, I believe more than that, I should say, um, strangely has been heavily centered in Southern California. So as far north as I've ever moved and immediately I got sent right back home again. Um, but just great though, because I still have all my family down there. And uh, essentially we have two field sites, our regular home in Washington and the home I grew up in in San Diego. So we do quite a bit of work in the outer waters of the Southern California Bight that are centered around a series of naval training areas. And a lot of our research looks at the impacts of naval training activities on the species that inhabit that area. They started with an emphasis on beaked whales, and that was sparked by the mass stranding events that became increasingly correlated with the use of mid-frequency active sonar. So there's a training range, if you're familiar with the Channel Islands, that the southernmost Channel Island is San Clemente Island, off the coast mm-hmm. of Southern California. And it is controlled by the U.S. Navy, and they do all sorts of training exercises out there. But the west side of that island is a really deep basin, and it is filled with hydrophones that they use for their training exercises, but conveniently can also be used to listen in on marine mammals. So, so many years ago, I can hardly believe it, um, 2006, we started a little pilot project out there to help them basically train that hydrophone system to know what species were frequently using this sonar training range. Um, With interest in understanding whether it was important to beaked whales because of the issues Um, that are known to to occur uh, around maybe sonar and and beak dwell species so what started as a little pilot project that nobody had much hope for we thought there's no way there'll be nothing out there it'll be like a ghost town Um, turns out to be actually a really high density really fascinating um, area so. Essentially, what happened is it became a really productive area to study these sonar impacts unexpectedly. And it has changed the entire trajectory of my career, which prior to then was very much working with um, humpbacks, actually, a lot of humpback research. And um, it suddenly became beaked whales, which nobody knew anything about. And interestingly, fin whales, because um, along California's coast, as you probably noted, they are very much an offshore species. So we have so many large whale species that will come right in along the coast. And we have learned so much from California's humpback whales and gray whales, and blue whales that are really accessible, but fin whales are not. And so they're kind of an enigma, mm-hmm. um, but this offshore site where we were now going multiple times a year was letting us start to collect data about fin whales enough to then develop a dedicated research program, um, as much as one can do that with fin whales because they are super hard for a lot of reasons. And um, here we are, whatever 16 years later, Uh, finally being able to publish some real, I would say, leaps of understanding around that species and this kind of slow, painstaking data collection method that that we have um, fallen into. So any other questions about my background and how I ended up with fin whales in my pocket?
1: No, I don't think so. Um, So when you're not doing whale things, what kind of hobbies do you have? What other interests do you have other than whales?
0: Horses. Horses, okay. Yeah, Yeah. no, I grew up a horse crazy kid. I've always um had some poor hapless horse that has been dragged with me through life as I split my time between you know doing what is quite a bit of field work obviously for my career with whales, but um, my life has always been shaped so that when I'm not in the field, there's a horse nearby. That's Um,
1: awesome.
0: Yeah, that's definitely my other love. And then I do um as a as a volunteer effort on the side a lot of food system development work. Okay. Um, for my local community, which is something I've had to learn a lot about, but it just let me do kind of some actionable things that were had more, you know, local and global impact. So
1: that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool to hear. Yeah. I bet you've learned a lot from that.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, it's one of those where I realized, you know, out of working on the water and through sure you do picking up humanity's trash and started saying at some point you have to start to address the source of the problem and wow. not just trying to pick up after it, right, and I was like, you know, food, food touches everything, so that was sort of my way of, um, <laughs> like, over committing myself to a whole other line of work, but
1: yeah, definitely, but no, was- that, that totally makes sense, like, I think a lot of, you know, our environmental issues are rooted in something much deeper than, you know, like, we're oftentimes just treating the symptoms of it versus mm-hmm. getting to the problem, yeah, that totally makes sense, that's awesome, Um, so can you tell us, I, like anything about fin whales so i think most people just don't know that much about fin whales except for they're like smaller than blue whales and they have the chevron pattering and that's about it
0: yeah can you give me one second i'm yeah. sorry no worries Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Sorry about that. Sorry. <laughs> My life is happening. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I love to talk about fin whales. <laughs> I can talk. We do know more than most people do. Like, um, maybe I'll have to edit it, but we often call them the bastard stepchild of the large whale family. <laughs> Every, I just feel like I'm, you know, nobody loves them as much as they should. Um, but, but yeah, they are known I'm for being the awesome. the second largest species on Earth. You know, they're not as big as a blue whale but they are beautiful you know actually if you ever see one up close like long and sleek and dark and beautifully patterned um you know they have this long sleek black body the chevron markings but one cool thing is that the right side of their lower jaw is white that is actually the best diagnostic feature so if you see because there's a number of large black sleek whales that are hard to tell apart so fin whales say whales and brutus whales but if you look at the front if you can get a look at the head the right jaw will be bright white on a fin whale. nobody else has that and you know, it's one of those strange asymmetries in nature that we don't even understand particularly well, but probably has something to do with foraging. They're fast. Um, they like blue whales. Um, they're more generalist than blue whales. That's one of the things that houses niche segregation. So even when you have them in the same area where blue whales are very much krill and small crustacean specialists, like they cannot tolerate fish and their diet is my understanding. Um, but fin whales will switch. They will do krill. If krill is abundant, they will do fish. If fish are abundant, much like humpbacks. Um, but aside from that, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding. And one of those things is like the general assumption is that they are a migratory large baleen whale, like most of the other ones. In spite of that, um, nobody knows where they breed <laughs> and nobody knows where they calve. Um, you know, they, the whaling data would show that they are certainly seasonal breeders, that calves are predominantly born in the winter. but you know, I've been looking now specifically at fin whales for the better part of two decades, and I have seen one neonate fin whale in all that time, and it'll work year-round. So, um, in our entire, you know, photo ID collection, we've had a one other contribution that showed an animal with a neonate. So, by the time we're seeing the calves, they're, they're several months old. They're already starting to get towards, you know, still associated, but moving into the weaning period. So that's kind of amazing, you know, that you would have these populations that are actually fairly large and have no idea with a, in a large whale. Um, in terms of their whaling history, yes, absolutely a target. And most of their populations worldwide were completely decimated. But the West Coast population, so um, again, I, as I say this, I'm opening a little bit of of worms that'll get to what we just published, but um, they are managed, um, in three different stocks in the, in the, um, eastern part of the North Pacific ocean. And one is an Alaska stock. One is a Hawaii stock, which is virtually unknown other than that. You hear them calling in Hawaii at certain times. Mm-hmm. And then the others would be California, Oregon, Washington stock that we work in. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, mostly known from doing these large offshore line transect density estimates. So okay. um National Marine Fisheries Service does these surveys and has since the nineties, um, where they're mowing the lawn all the way up and down the west coast of the United States, going out three hundred or so nautical miles. And those have suggested that fin whale populations are recovering really quickly and really well. Mm-hmm. And they've gotten, you know, quite big during that well, I shouldn't say that because we don't know how many there should be, but um pretty large. And so they've been sort of a lower concern. They're still endangered but seem to be doing well. Mm-hmm. But One of our concerns um, as we started paying more attention to fin whales is, is that a really an accurate population delineation? Mm -hmm. Um, Are they one homogeneous unit that uses those waters? Because when you're looking at a risk assessment, um, they basically are amortizing that risk across the population unit. But if there are actually smaller populations within that unit that are not recognized, you can have really differential risk rates Mm-hmm. And so that's a lot of what has prompted our research, is to understand better what is the true risk to segments of that population if it's not actually one homogeneous population, and we have reasons to believe that it probably wasn't. So um, we've done quite a bit of work, at least in this zone, trying to build lines of evidence to help us understand. And, you know, we, we've drawn parallels with killer whales, you know, in, in our understanding that people used to always look at killer whales that way, too, you know, that these are just this global species and they're everywhere. And now we know that it couldn't be farther from the truth. They're probably one of the most segregated species that probably shouldn't even be one species. And then even within one ecotype, you have these really segregated populations that have hugely differential effects, but you don't know until you start looking at them as individuals. And that's one of the challenges with fin whales is that they're not as obviously individuals (laughs) as a lot of other whale species are. They can be really similar looking. So it, it took us a while to kind of train ourselves and our methods to be able to work with a less distinctive species of whale but we've figured it out we've managed to get some pretty good data on those guys and learn how to see them as the individuals they are that's
1: amazing um yeah that's like i mean it's so fascinating just to see how our understanding of wildlife has changed in a relatively short period of time like you know with the killer whales like we just thought okay they're all killer whales and People would shoot killer whales off of like Canada, Canada, you know, because they're like, oh, they're going to eat all the salmon, but some of them didn't even eat salmon. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's super fascinating. So we're here to talk about your publication, movements and residencies of the fin whale in the California current system. So I'm just curious, how did you guys figure out um, that there were so many different individuals? And do we have an estimate on how many, you know, potential subgroups or ecotypes or however you guys want to label it, there might be?
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it's going to be an ecotype situation here, but what they're going to be is populations that have different residency and movement patterns, and that's what we were looking for. And it's actually a fun story. It's a very anecdotal story, but, you know, how they hooked me Mm -hmm. Um, is that we went into it with this understanding that, you know, when when you want to do a photo ID study of a population, there's a few bars that have to be crossed for it to even be viable. One is that the population can't be so big that you could never meaningfully sample enough individuals for the statistics to work. Okay. Another is that the individuals in that population have to be distinctive enough to reliably tell them apart. If they all look the same and the population is huge, this is not your method. You need to count them a different way. So we had to start there, you know, and the assumption was that, one, the population might actually be just way too big. Like, we're trying to population, do photo ID on a population of 10,000 animals, and with our effort rates, we were never going to get enough data to ever capture the same well twice. Yeah. Basically, that's kind of – are you familiar with photo ID or should we – Yes. No, yeah, definitely. Right? So, I mean, it just becomes a, like like the marbles in the jar, you know if you've got ten thousand marbles in the jar and you only can stick your hand in there a couple times a year and you can only get three marbles per draw you know what are the odds you're going to get the same two unless they're not moving right so if that's a fully mixed jar the odds are originally zero but you have to get enough marbles twice for the stats to work Mm -hmm. so we started seeing finwells and we just started taking identification photographs of the dorsal fin region which is the most distinct part of them Mm -hmm. and um just in case we're like, let's just, you know, what are the odds? Maybe we'll see one twice. It could happen. (laughs) And so, and what happened was in 2006, one of the first whales that we identified, that we took pictures of, um, and then entered our little, what would have been catalog. Um, A few years later, let's see, where were we? 2009, um, we were working off coastal California and a really cool thing happened. All of a sudden, there were fin whales really close to shore. For the first time in memory, no one remembered this. I mean, if they were doing it before the whaling era, nobody cared. And since then, it was extraordinarily rare to have a fin whale come in to a zone where you could easily get to it from shore in a small boat. Mm-hmm. And this big influx of animals moved in. There were shearwaters everywhere. There was just some November feeding aggregation, really an unusual time of year. And there were tons of fin whales. So all of a sudden, we switched our efforts from way out on the Navy Range and came in. And we're like, let's take advantage of this and get a whole bunch of fin whale IDs. And in this feeding aggregation, um, was an animal that we ended up tagging
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, um, we were doing satellite t- telemetry tags So these are these really tiny tags that you can put on the fin and then you can track them for weeks, months at a time. So that was one of the questions of let's understand how they move seasonally. And we, um, tagged this particular whale. And when I, I remember at the time thinking that the animal looked familiar and, I went back into our our photographs after that and said, hey, we've got to recapture. Look at this. And it actually turned out that the whale had been seen prior to 2006 in some old black and white photographs that we got from a very early research project. And we're like, whoa, wow. there's either way fewer fin whales than we think there are or they're not moving around because this animal's been seen off California actually a number of times. So to make it even more, I was like this more tantalizing. We put the tag on this whale and it... um whales aren't great at keeping their tags on for reasons we still don't understand. Uh, but we were able to track the animal, moved around in Southern California for a little while, and then the tag came off and we lost its track. So as Ian mentioned, we live in Washington, and we also do research up here. And when it's very calm in the middle of winter, we can occasionally get off the coast of Washington and out into deep water. But to get to water that's deep enough for fin whales off Washington, it's like a 45-mile straight offshore run in the dead of winter in a little boat. Not yeah. the best, but yeah. we do it um so we had a little weather break and we went out to one of these canyons that we knew would sometimes get fin whales in and we go into this aggregation and we were going to do some more tagging and we plump next to a whale and i was like oh my god it's that whale <laughs> and my <laughs> partner goes no these are fin whales there's no way you wouldn't even recognize and i'm like no no this one is distinctive and that trust me i'm like get on the other side of it and sure enough you could see the scars where a recent tag had released oh my god these are implant tags and i was like we are studying fin whales. <laughs> That's so crazy. That is the animal that's pictured in our paper because that one is just the most wonderful way. Like if that animal hadn't like crossed paths with my life ra- randomly um that many times, I don't think I would have thought it was worth the effort to do as much work as females actually are, especially when no one wants to pay for it because they're like, yeah. Oh, there's ten thousand. We're not worried about those.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. Definitely. <laughs>
0: And I think the other, like, minor thing, to, not minor, but, but important thing to note is that in terms of, you know, risks to large whales along the West Coast, sh- ship strike is, um, without a doubt, the highest risk factor. And fin whales are by far the most frequently struck whale. So that's a big assumption, that the population is huge, great, and homogeneous, and this amount of ship strike isn't a problem, that when you start yeah. seeing this, you're like, hmm, we should look. So, yeah.
1: Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely there are so many examples of us making like conservation-based decisions throughout history that are just like they're not based in science they're based in like our ideas that we have which are most of the time wrong Mm -hmm. um so i i think that's a a good point that you draw on of like the importance of like true scientific investigation in conservation efforts Mm -hmm. um that's amazing um Yeah, because I definitely, like, people will ask questions about fin whales, and I'm just like, we don't know. Um, um, And I've definitely noticed, too, that people that see fin whales in this area tend to see the same fin whales, um, Mm -hmm. which is crazy. So, um, what did you find in your study? Um, And how did, like, obviously you came to design the study because, you know, you were like, what are they doing? But what did you guys
0: find? So ultimately, what we continue to find was lots of evidence that this is not one large homogeneous population that is moving up and down the U.S. West Coast, and that there is much higher risk to to segments of the population that form these localized regional subunits. And we focus most heavily on Southern California because we have the most data from there. Mm -hmm. Um, But both from our tagging work and then also from this very long, painstaking photo ID project, um, the tags give us the perspective of how animals use habitat and how they redistribute themselves over periods of months. Mm-hmm. And the animals that are tagged in Southern California very seldom leave the Southern California bite. So they might go 100 miles offshore, but they're circulating basically in that sort of bioregion um, of water. And every now and then you'll get one that's going to go up to Washington. We managed to get the one of the few that did that. But as a rule, most of them, aren't, they don't do that. And so, um, what this tells us is that these probably should be managed separately. And, um, you know, if you, sorry, I jumped ahead of myself a little bit, but that's what the weeks to months picture looks like. That, you know, if you do migrate, you're going to spend a lot of time there before you do. But when we started looking at these very long sighting histories, and we were able to do it apart from our own research, going into the outer waters and running into fin whales a little bit more often, but also because the population started shifting in. So, all of a sudden, the whale watch boats were seeing fin whales all the time. So we built you know, sort of a citizen science network of awareness that, no, fin whales are important. Take those pictures. We'll take them. These are not like a throwaway species. Mm-hmm. And um, we were able to work with a couple of the organizations down there. Like Aquarium of the Pacific was huge because they actually had a naturalist who had a weakness for fin whales, who was like, I'm going to make sure these get processed and get where they need to go. And I think she was another one of the pivotal people if she hadn't been in there, you know, to make sure that they paid attention to them. I don't know that we would have had it so all of a sudden we now have this really rich timeline um, where we were getting hundreds of ids a year to start to really get recaptures and what we found in there was without question like you're noticing in the bay the animals that the whale watch boats see are the same animals and these animals have been documented year round they've been documented year after year after year um, there's everything in them that says this is a resident animal the way we think of killer whales that have these limited home ranges this is not an animal whose um, normal life occurs between northern Mexico and southern Canada this is an animal whose whole life is happening in the southern California bite which is a dangerous place to be a whale a lot of the time for sure and a lot of their core foraging areas are actually right, right outside shipping lanes and that yeah. and you start to understand you know why you see fin whales so overrepresented
1: mm-hmm. and
0: that these are probably not all the fin whales um Evenly distributing this risk. This is this resident group that's at really high risk of being hit. And, and many of the animals that are now, we now recognize as Southern California residents have um, evidence of vessel collisions. And those are just the ones that have survived, right? You know, there's many of them that get hit and they sink in the outer waters in California and you will never know.
1: Um, yeah, that's, that that is pretty crazy. Yeah, I know that like we, we just had like a, a humpback whale die from ship strike that was like one of the most spotted whales um in Monterey Bay. Um, what, why do you think they're getting hit? Because I feel like whales are very smart and they're very acoustically inclined. Why, do, why don't they just move?
0: Do we That's, know? I, I love, actually, I love when I get that question. Yeah. Um, have you ever spent much time on the water in heavy fog in the shipping lane? I have not, no. <laughs> I don't recommend it. Yeah. Um, I can only say I've almost been hit by a freighter in heavy fog in the shipping lane. Um, and it had, in that moment, I was like, I know my whales get hit. <laughs> that makes but, sense. It has to do with, there's a number of factors that contribute. So I think one, um, if I had to try to run through them, Uh is that uh, that acoustic environment is actually noisy. The near surface acoustic environment is hard to localize. There's a lot of different noise and, and effects that are affecting how sound moves. Two, those freighters move fast and the noisy part is very far behind them, right? So the animals are getting hit by the bow, but the engines are all at the back. Makes sense. So there's another just confounding factor in a whale getting out of the way. Um, Again, baleen whales aren't, um, we don't know as well, but probably not as good at very fine scale acoustic localization. So I can say from my human experience, like when you can't see, you don't have your primary sensory mode helping you localize yourself, you know that there's something coming at you. You think it might be coming fast, but you don't know how to avert it. These things are huge, huge. Hmm. So I think there's, it's just hard for them. I mean, we've done a lot of work with other researchers in this area, put tags on to try to study what happens to a whale in that moment when we're at the surface going, ah, you know, watching this thing develop, Um, how they have to make a choice for when, you know, when to surface, where to surface, where to go. So I think there's that moment of collision that can be really hard for a whale to navigate. You know, the draft on those ships is very deep. You know, how deep does the whale have to go to not be caught in the prop wash? Yeah. Um, So, Plus, then it just becomes density. How many ha- animals are hanging out and foraging in a very high shipping area? Then it's just odds of how often are you going to have to have this interaction. But one of the things we learned from some of our tags is we have satellite tags that can record diving data, very simple summaries, and transmit it back via satellite. And we learned that, um, at least for our fin whales, they spend the vast majority of the night hanging out at the surface or very near it. Interesting. And so they are not visible. And they are using the very top layer of the water column, and so ships can't see them. they can't always hear ships very well. they may or may not be awake, they're right at the surface so it's it's the perfect storm of of the you know situation once the animals start moving to the areas that the ships are using.
1: yeah, no, I mean that makes complete sense um that is like really difficult. I mean we've definitely like we've we've had situations where in the fog whales pop up in front of us and like Thankfully, nothing has ever happened, but, like, it does happen where it's just, like, mm-hmm. all of a sudden there's a whale, um, and I could see how that, that would be challenging. So, I can imagine that this is a, a very complex issue to manage because, you know, I, I'm sure that if we educated, you know, the ship captains about the situation that they would probably do their best to slow down, hopefully. um, But if they can't see them, there's nothing you can really do. um. Is there any sort of like thermal detectors that we can put like on boats to to, to detect the whales potentially in the fog um to help them to slow down or anything
0: yeah up? there is actually infrared imaging that um I, I don't know i'm not super up on what the state of it is but people are working on that as a mitigation technique and there's a lot of people working on the mitigation of this and some of it's rerouting shipping lanes some of it's um, active management where people report aggregations and they can potentially shift lanes or put in speed restrictions that are temporary but it's hard because you know these ships time is money and it's there's such incentive to get into the port and out of the port as fast as you possibly can within the confines of the regulatory situation at the time i think you know the northern um, north atlantic right whale situation is probably where we look you know they tend to be at the forefront of how to do that type of active management because those animals are so imperiled um, and they're trying a lot of those different techniques, but I think it's going to be all of those things, plus the industry getting behind it and making concessions always right and these, there's a That's lot of stakeholders, be. you know, and if you yeah. can't get the stakeholders to not push back against them, you know, you get the science community and the activism community all to be aligned and willing to concede enough you know, that we can probably make a difference. Probably never erase it, but, you know, bring it down to an acceptable level. Um, yeah. I also think there's educating recreational voters because in places like Southern California it's a huge part of the problem. You know, they don't kill whales as often, but they sure do injure them. And Oh, no doubt. Yeah. You know, I think it is dangerous for the people too. I think um, you know, it's an, an under regulated problem to be sure. And especially once you get animals that are close enough to shore for people to get out there, there's Blow over them, I mean, you know. With Monterey, I'm sure it happens there too.
1: It's fortunately in Monterey because of the like winds and the swell that we get. I think that that reduces the amount of wreck boaters. Like it's rare for me to see a wreck boater. I almost only see commercial, either whale watching or fishing vessels. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been down to Southern California, and it's a hot mess. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's not a. It's not good. And I think also too, just like you know, a lot of people have kind of sensationalized whale watching through like social media or like you know just people see other people getting really close to animals online and there's not enough like disclosure of like hey this is what the marine mammal protection act states and this is how far we should stay away and a lot of people are just like uneducated and they see it online or or they just i mean who wouldn't have a draw to a whale like if i was completely like, unaware of how whales behave and, and the danger to whales, I would absolutely, in my little wreck boat go approach a whale, like, of course, like, who doesn't want to see that, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I think we definitely needed, like, a bit more education, um, and also, I know it's tough, too, because there's only two no-enforcement officers in
0: the state of California, so it's like, what can you do, you know? Yeah. No, Uh, I mean, I think you've been in the San Juans, I think I overheard, and, you know, just having, like, Soundwatch and those independent organizations who take that up makes a really big difference.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: it's hard, you know, someone's got to want to fund that, and when you're dealing with Southern California, it's just so many orders of magnitude, like, more land, more boats, more everything, you know, to be trying to patrol.
1: As opposed to the sound, where it's just, like, a lot more compact, I guess. Yeah.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um... Yeah, I think education is is the first thing because I think that the general public, you know, they approach a whale because they, you know, it's a big charismatic megafauna, you know, like, um, but I think that, you know, most people, if they know that what they were doing was harmful to the animal would not want to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's complicated. So, um, were you able to suggest any sort of like risk management or conservation management, um, like recommendations for the fin whales and then also you know are we going to have different recommendations based on the different um how would you say like populations subgroups Mm -hmm.
0: that's where we're going with it actually at this stage so the step one is getting them recognized Mm -hmm. as a, a management unit and we're obviously still at step one Mm -hmm. Um, is just saying like, as you calculate risk for fin whales, you can't assume that it's happening across this large population. You know, ultimately our interpretation of our um, tagging and photo ID data is that there is probably truly a California current, if you will, or California, Oregon, Washington population that primarily stays way offshore, Mm. way off. They never come in, you never see them. It's large, it's healthy. It probably did not get hit by whaling anywhere near as hard as anything that was a coastal population. And they're a different management unit than the animals that are using the coast. Uh Um, And so we need to get that into those regulatory discussions each year now as they go forward. It's a big deal um, to get those officially recognized population subunits. Like um, it took a lot of research and a lot of years to get that to happen with humpbacks. And humpbacks are super hard because of their migratory patterns, you know, figuring out where to put the lines in these um confluent migratory units where animals are all over the place literally across an ocean basin um fin whales actually potentially be easier when it's truly resident animals then and it should in theory be easier however it opens a whole can of worms because it all comes down to the number you know the biological removal potential biological removal removal how many can you afford to kill before you start to send this group into decline Absolutely. Um, and so when that population number gets small, that number gets small. And all of a sudden, people start looking at the shift strike rates that they are now and go, you know, for this sure. means regulation, like hard. Yeah. So it's, it's a tough conversation to have. But that's where it starts, at least for us on the science side, is to build that case that you take to court, that this is a distinct unit, that is a distinct population segment is what they're often mm. the, the label that we're going for. And it deserves to be managed and mitigated apart from the larger regional population of which it used to be considered a part. It's happening a lot. And I think one of the things, like as I was writing this paper, there was research coming out from all over the world, really in the last five to 10 years, where people are doing photo ID with fin whales and realizing that they actually are not necessarily a migratory baleen whale species by default, that it is probably fairly normal for them to be a mix of resident population segments and migratory population segments especially. Yes. Um, and that's probably going to as they recover you know these coastal ones would be the first ones that disappeared and then they disappeared completely mm-hmm. but what we're seeing them now is start to come back and so for us you know the next steps are actually doing genetic work um, and looking at some other factors to try to get a sense of um, are these legacy populations that were just so tiny we couldn't see them or are these animals from the larger population that are coming in and going, oh, this place is great because some of the work that we did with our tags was populate, or habitat modeling that helped us understand like why the Southern California bite is ecologically suitable for fin whales year round. Yeah. So it's hypothetically possible that, you know, an animal from that larger pool could come into Southern California and just keep finding what it wants and decide not to go. Um, And then that population can build. So it draws from that larger population as these other animals discover this habitat's great. Why migrate if I don't have to? Mm. But then it becomes what's called a population sink, where it's essentially pulling animals into a high risk area and reducing the population that way. So that's one plausible scenario, but we do not have the data to answer that question. Mm. Um, But there's a little bit, you know, a few threads of evidence that actually suggest that there probably was. A originally a resident population there. And that these are fundamentally different units. They've always been different units. They just, we couldn't see it.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I suspect that Monterey Bay probably has one. And I suspect that as you work your way up the coast, that this is normal for females to have some animals that are non-migratory that probably used to never mix. In the same way, I mean, if there's one thing we've learned when we start to pay attention to whales as individuals is that these are highly cultured. I know it's a little bit of a risky word. Um, animals, yeah. you know, and that they don't, in the same way that Humans can move all over this planet if they want to, but we don't. You know, we have our home ranges and our identities and our habits. And once we've learned our region, you know, our local environment, which we learned from our parents, you know, this starts to separate us. You know, we become distinct. And I think whales very much do that probably so much more than we have ever recognized. Um, and with baleen whales, it's extra hard because you have to watch this slowly reemerge out of whaling and the legacy of whaling.
1: Yeah absolutely no i i mean i think that whales are they're very interesting because they've kind of challenged our ideas of you know quote-unquote anthropomorphizing animals and like you know acknowledging traits that have been assigned to humans like culture
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: to wild animals so i think it's just interesting to see the development of that um do we know anything about the social structure of these whales so i'm sure they they will surprise us in some way just because they're so sneaky you know Mm -hmm. And we don't it's hard for us to see what they're up to do we know anything about the social structure like do they pod i mean i know most baleen whales don't pod but yeah
0: no you know at this stage we have no evidence to think that they form any type of longer lasting social units though not like the way killer whales or dolphins will um but it'll be interesting because it takes consistent um interaction for those to develop so no i think they still wean their young probably within a year and then they mostly go their separate ways and you know to the extent we're going to learn anything about that it's going to come from humpbacks and as we know like in alaska we have cooperative feeding units yes this is where it happens they have a functional basis Mm -hmm. where unrelated animals come together and they learn how to feed together and year after the year they're like oh team we did great last year you know and so that that becomes a recognizable social unit that is built around foraging, not as far as we can see, um, around their affection for each other or around genetics. Um, Very possible that something like that could happen with fin whales. Um, They they don't cooperatively feed as much as humpbacks. I mean, they do in a way, sometimes do, it's called um, echelon formation feeding, where you'll get fin whales that are working in a line together as a way to efficiently use, um, you know, a dense prey resource. I'll just say we're far from, if it's there, it's going to be subtle and harder to find, but I am never surprised to find it. Or it happens on timescales that are so long that we don't see it, you know, in our somewhat short attention spans of research.
1: Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. So what is next for you as far as, because we're obviously we're in stage one of figuring out these things. Like what other, I mean, I'm sure you have to develop like special technologies maybe for the fin whales because they're losing their tags. What's next in studying them and like how else can we start answering some of these questions?
0: So I actually think a lot of this management stuff is gonna come really heavily from the photo ID side. Okay. Um, And also genetics, because right now it becomes a question of building the case for population differentiation. Mm. So what we're working on right now is um, one thing that we've noticed and has been used to differentiate populations in other species in other parts of the world is just what they look like. You know, they are kind of a more generic looking animal, but like most species, if I'm looking at a catalog from Canada, for example, in ours, like I can look at an animal and be like, that's not a California whale. Because you start to pick up on these subtle distinctions like the prevalence of cookie cutter shark bites, the prevalence of certain kinds of parasites um the dis- the brightness of their markings like um our west coast population animals actually tend to have very muted chevron patterns it's actually super annoying it's one of the things that makes them hard because in populations that have a nice bright chevron that's actually one of the features they use to make them individually distinct because they're all slightly different when you have patterning that's great our animals don't always have a lot of patterning so we have to just use things like fin shape which is very distinctive mm-hmm. scarring but all that to say that you can use Actually, what they look like as an indicator of where they come from, and so we are working on that right now, doing some standardized um, mark analyses, and then combining that with citing history data to mm-hmm. see if there's other lines of oh yeah, these are, is actually have a consistent difference in their pigmentation patterning and their scar rates that also suggests that they are segregated. Yeah, um, and then we are taking genetic samples, um, which we've always collected and archived, and so it'll be looking at haplotype data, which is a very coarse metric of your legacy of um, population structure, so it's like a big picture, but then also getting into to the nuclear um, genetic, which is more individualized and can be more sensitive to this much finer scale type of differentiation. Um, looking at tox- toxicology, um, so the abundance of persistent, um, that's what I'm looking for, contaminants in their blower um, is often used to define and to recognize populations of animals based on what their toxic exposure is. In animals off California, as you probably know, and you can actually take a sample and know by their DDT load, especially in Southern California. That's crazy. Yeah, if you didn't know that, like you can take a killer whale sample and know where they come from. Oh, DDT, you're an offshore California whale. Oh, PCB or PDBEs, you spend a lot of time in Puget Sound, don't you? You know, it's Uh, sad, bad but true. So we'll be looking at all of those pieces that help us identify based on where we've seen you and where we know you to have gone. Um, Are there other things that we can then start to say make you special and make you different? Um, The other thing that's happening that's really cool is, like, as I very much glossed over, photo ID with females is hard because they are subtle. And, you know, you are dealing with a large population. So, like, for us, that bigger population probably migrates through Southern California twice a year. So, depending on when we take the picture, we are sometimes sampling from a population of 10,000. So your catalog gets really big because you don't see those whales twice, hardly ever, Mm -hmm. but your coat, your smaller group, you sample a lot, but that just the bigger your catalog, the longer it takes. And when you're working with the species that so far has defied all automated matching attempts, like as you probably know, like humpbacks now have a really powerful algorithm. That's letting, letting researchers do global photo ID. So it is answering population level questions. Human eyes could never have done because the sheer volume of photographs that is required to start to find these occasional vagrants that are going really far um we can't do that with like we're kind of at the max of the catalog size that we can handle with our fin whales right now and we're you we should know this but you know somewhere over a thousand or 1500 whales in our catalog but we'd really like to compare that to these other catalogs so there's fin whale catalogs from the gulf of california there's fin whale catalogs from canada So that's going to help us start to delineate. How often do you have these limited movements? Like they're already starting to see it in Canada. Same thing. You have animals that are coming inshore, probably very resident. Animals that are further offshore could be mixing all the way down to California, but you don't know. So our whales and many of people's whales are right now um, in an algorithm development competition, actually, that Google hosted, which is what spawned the very successful humpback matching algorithm Mm -hmm. to get a really sensitive dorsal fin matching algorithm. Mm -hmm. And most people always say like fin whales are going to be the one, you know, like, if you can get one that does fin whales, you can get one that does anything. So um, there's a lot of progress happening, like I actually won't be too surprised if in the next year or two we have an automated system that will let us do comparisons that are a thousand whales to another thousand whale catalog. That's amazing. Yeah I hope so because I, I we just basically were like uncle can't do it no. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we need that technology to come to unlock the bigger collections offshore collections things like that.
1: Absolutely no that completely makes sense. Um, I, and I think that that would just be pretty like Telling of so many things, like I would answer a lot of questions if we're able to do that. I think the technology is getting there. Like we're just seeing, you know, in a lot of areas of research, not just marine science, like rapid development of technology that's just taking us places that we didn't expect it to. So mm-hmm. I think we could get there, which would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that being said, I um, I wonder because you know I think about citizen science a lot because we have like you know the whole Happy Well thing, and I oftentimes like question. You know, how how really like valuable is that to the scientists? But it sounds like, you know, for fin whales or something like that, if we have people that listen to this podcast that are like naturalists or whale enthusiasts, if they get photos, it's probably good to submit them somewhere. Right.
0: Yes. Yes. Those photos are so valuable. I mean, for fin whales could not do what we did without citizen science. Okay. period end of story like on it really really valuable though no it doesn't mean like everybody go and get your boat and drive up next to whales but if you're on a whale watch boat and you get a nice perpendicular image meaning like you're seeing the whale sideways and its dorsal fin is nice and flat in the right shape um please like send them through happy whale we take photos from happy whale um happy whale doesn't have an algorithm to process them they route them to us to get processed so they are not lost. You know, there's, there's a whole back alley network of whale researchers who are passing their photos around to each other to make sure that that data gets used because it is absolutely useful, especially for the hard to sample species.
1: Definitely. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. I like, you know, cause I feel like with the humpbacks, there's like so many humpback photos. And I'm like, how, how much is like, you know, are we actually doing anything to help or is this just something where we're making ourselves feel better? But I think, you know, for those rare species, it definitely makes sense. Not to say it's not good for the humpbacks, That those are just like my own personal questions. I'm like, is this actually worth,
0: you know, mm-hmm. worth it? But that's awesome. Okay, cool. And I uh, will say, I mean, as a sidebar for the humpbacks, yeah, like when, when a human had to process all those, it was a volume of data that just wasn't feasible. Yeah. But now with an algorithm, it actually is useful because you can start to look at things like mortality rates that yeah. take really, really high consistent sampling. So don't cut yourself short. Like As long as there's the technology and the data storage, 50 replicates isn't necessarily a bad thing.
1: Yeah, that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, Amazing. So a question that I always ask people is what can we learn from typically
0: orcas, but in this
1: case, what can we learn from fin whales?
0: Uh, what can we learn on what, uh, like, as a human species? I, as a human
1: species, I love, people answer it, like, that way, and they also answer it scientifically as well. But most people answer it, like, as, as humans, what can we learn from fin
0: whales? Um, avoid stereotypes. <laughs> That's what I sometimes think. You know, so often when people just look and be like, oh, God, they're all the same. You know, like, so many assumptions were made that prevented research from even happening to validate the question in the first place. And it's a good point to, like, check your assumptions. Actually, they are not all identical. You can tell them apart. No, you know, they're not doing great. There isn't just thousands of them everywhere. It's the same one over and over again. Um, so I think that's probably probably the most important one. You know, don't, yeah. don't underestimate the understated.
1: <laughs> yeah, I love that. Amazing. Um, well, are there any other thoughts you care to share with our listeners?
0: No, I just want to say thank you um, to the citizen scientists. Again, Like, don't feel undervalued. You have made so much work possible for this species. I really, really appreciate it, and we are happy to work with you guys. Oh,
1: good. Well, yeah, anyone listening to this, if you get fin whale photos, put them on Happy Whale. Amazing.
0: Mm-hmm. That's the easy oh, way. Yes. All right. Well, thank you for joining me. You bet. And I'm happy to help if you have any questions, so don't fail to hit me up. Erin at or, eFalcone at maricotel.org.
1: Okay, awesome.